Hey friends, Dean here with some exciting news to share. You can now buy us a coffee. That's right. You can help support independent content creators like us by becoming a member of the 3324 Green Room at buymeacoffee.com slash 3324. Our episodes will always be free and that will not change, but your support at buymeacoffee.com slash 3324 will help us continue to bring you the best in music and movie podcasting, in our humble opinion. As a Green Room supporter, you'll not only have our undying gratitude, but you'll also be able to vote on which episodes we record and receive other perks for as low as $3 per month. That's the price of a cup of coffee. There's absolutely no obligation and nothing about the show will change. It's not going behind a paywall. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash 3324 for all the details. The link will be in the show notes of every episode as well. We'll see you in the green room. In this episode, we're heading back to 1987 as Guns N' Roses delivers a knockout punch to rock and roll with their debut album, Appetite for Destruction. Stay with us. Get ready for the 3324 Podcast, where lifelong friends Dean Legiro and Eric Coover share their love of all things music and movies. Dean has directed short films and is a music trivia buff. And Eric, trained in audio engineering, brings his extensive knowledge of music and film to the conversation as they discuss, debate, and celebrate their favorite albums, films, and much more. Welcome, friends, to the 3324 Podcast, your final destination. You've hopefully checked out all the other different music and movie podcasts, and you're tired, and there's one more left, and it's us. Mm-hmm. And that, then you don't need to go any further, Eric. Is that is that a fair assessment? That, oh, it's a very fair assessment. Right. This is the final. the final countdown. <laughs> what, what do they say? Like in, in the pizzerias on the pizza box, you've tried the rest. Now try the best. There you go. Right? That's usually on the on the yeah. p- box of pizza. Right. I, I think we can steal that that motto. <laughs> you've tried all the other podcasts. Uh, the last yeah. one, the last one is going to be the best one. So join yeah. us on social media, won't you? At thirty three twenty four podcast that works on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, a lot of good information, a lot of great community there, um, which is a lot of fun too. Half the fun is is me seeing what other uh, other community members post and what information they share and what they like. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a neat. Uh, it's not just us downloading info. It's very uh, very much a back and forth. So yeah, um, <clears throat> we've got a special guest with us. Uh, I went. I got into the DeLorean. I went back to nineteen uh, seventy something to Springhurst Elementary School. Oh, and I plucked yeah. our, my good friend Robert Prismant out and brought yeah. him back with me. We, we've known each other, Rob, since second, yes. third, first, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there. And, and when, you, when you live in a small town, uh, if you don't move, you go through each grade. With you, you literally spend a lifetime with with these people, especially in a, in a in a town where we came from that was very small. It was, everybody knew each other, even if you weren't in the same classes. So suffice to say that Rob and I spent a, knew each other for pretty much throughout our childhoods, um, and uh, and and as a music lover, um, I tended to gravitate towards those people more so in high school. Once uh, I got into music, and and Rob was one of those was one of those people. In addition to Eric, Eric came mm-hmm. sailing in around seventh grade. He kind yep. of swooped in into the scene. Yeah, um, moved from but, moved from Yonkers to Dobbs and from yep. Yonkers. Yonkers. So, um, yep. Rob, welcome aboard. Welcome to the show. Yes. We appreciate yes. this. Looking forward to it. Thank you. 
pleasure it's to great, see it's you, great having you. Yep. <clears throat> and, uh, a little story. I don't, I don't know if Rob remembers this, but uh, it may, it may, and, or it may sound familiar to Rob. Um, back in the day, he gave me a, uh, a Jimi Hendrix cassette tape. Uh, he mm. dubbed a copy of Are You Experienced for me? And that was my first introduction to Hendrix. And it was because of that. Yeah. <laughs> that was. That and did was you enjoy it, Dean? Did you like the tape? Um, I I did. I remember when when I when I my bro I played it for my brother, and my brother, you know, he, my brother got mad at me. He's like, "What are you listening to that stuff for? Like, what you know, what what kind of music is that you're listening to?" I'm like, oh, "Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I remember that. He kind of he kind of got a little angry. Like he didn't, you know. I was like, because uh, at the time that was a little, you know, not in the lane of of what we were listening to, but." uh but Rob yeah. was always good for the Van Halen. He was good for the Rush. Uh, mm -hmm. So we were very simpatico in, in, in our musical taste. So that was always, like I said, it was in high school. It was good to have a circle of friends uh, that that you shared uh, some common interests with, and it, it made life a little bit more uh, a little bit more bearable. Yeah, so. absolutely. We had some classes together too. Rob and Adam Barish, our good friend Adam Barish. Uh, yeah. Um, and we would talk again yeah the same thing with me it's, we would talk music we'd bring in cassettes and listen to like study hall we'd have our little cassette play you know tape recorder uh it wasn't a boom box it was just a little shitty you know tape recorder and we'd bring in our sneak in our cassettes and we listen to music talk music yeah, yeah it was all just you know good times and some, some yeah. 40 something years later we're yeah. still talking we're about still, music we're still talking about <laughs> <laughs> And we're still talking about yeah. the same music. <laughs> yeah. So the more yeah. things change, the more they stay the same, I guess yep. is the motto. But uh, <laughs> but thank you so much, Rob, for taking some time to talk about this sure. th this great album. Um, this is great because it's kind of a twofer. The, the episode previous to this, if you're listening to them in sequential order, um, our previous episode was The Lion and the Cobra from Sinead O'Connor, mm -hmm. which was a debut album that came out in 1987. This album, Appetite for Destruction from Guns N' Roses, is their debut album, which also came out in 1987. Um, if you listen to that, go back and listen to that episode. Check that out because this is going to be a very different story. You know, we we talk about in our stats, album sales, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, the the story of Guns N' Roses is a, probably a polar opposite of of the Sinead O'Connor story. Um, so let's get into it. let's get the stats going. Let's get that out of the way. Uh, and then we'll kind of start, we'll start digging into this and, and we'll see what we come up with. So this was released in July of 1987, produced by Mr. Mike Klink. <clears throat> there were five singles released from this album. Uh, it's So Easy, backed with Mr. Brownstone, which was in the UK only. Mm -hmm. uh, Welcome to the Jungle, Stateside, hit number seven. Sweet Child of Mine, hit number one. Paradise City, hit number five. And the Night Train took the Night Train uh to the edge of the charts and ended up at number 93. Um, it hit number one on Billboard, but that was a year after its release. We'll talk a little bit about that. It wasn't a, a hit right out of the gate. It wasn't this explosive thing. Um, it went 18 times platinum. Mm -hmm. That's, That's over 18 million and, and 30 million, 30 million worldwide. <clears throat> so it was one of, it yeah. is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And it might be the biggest selling debut album of all time. I think. Uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. That was their first year that they were eligible. So they, they got right in. They mm. got right in. So, Eric, let, let's, yeah. um, why, don't, why don't you start us off with uh, what's your interaction or connection or when did you jump on the night train with Guns N' Roses? <laughs> um, 
I can't say that I was uh, a fan from the gate or right out the gate, much like the, what, the way the album was perceived. I think it was, you know, when I was going to school in the city um, for audio engineering, we we did a project and we had to pick a song to, you know, make a, like a makeshift video for, and it was Paradise City. And so that kind of, the song kind of stuck in my head and, you know, because I had to listen to the song like tw- at least twice that in, in a session for like a week and a half. And, you know, so, you know, it really became an earworm. I became intrigued with the rest of the album because at, at that point, everybody was talking about it. It was a monster. Yeah. It was all over the radio. So I, you know, I finally listened to it and it's a formidable, formidable rock release. And it was, I was really glad to see back to form, just raunchy rock, in the style of like Aerosmith, vintage Aerosmith, or even the Stones, you know that kind of thing. It was just, it was just really a breath of fresh air at that point because a lot of the, the the rock acts of the of, of the period were very sort of glossy and and sort of like glam. You know, there was sort of the hair hair metal bands and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it was it was really nice to see something you know like real down and dirty again. Yeah. So it was really nice to hear. Yeah. Cool. So Rob, was- Rob, what about you? What was now? We were we were. <clears throat> We, we kind of had a, we have a parallel trajectory, I think, in the late 80s, because we were both working in record stores. Yeah. Right. Yes. So uh, we, and we were actually working for competitors. I, I used to work for Crazy Eddie, uh, which okay. was now defunct, probably didn't last much, much, probably didn't last very long, actually, in, into the 90s, if, if at all. And when did you start? You were working at Tower Records. I when was did working you start at Tower, Tower Records for a long time in 80. Eight, I started at Tower, but before that, I was working at Strawberries, which is a chain based in the Northeast. Uh, mostly so was that, was that how you got exposed? Was that how you got exposed to GNR? Or, well, I was working at Strawberries, and Geffen Records wanted to get people to the show so that it wasn't empty, and also have people hear their new artist. And it was about a month after the album came out and the Geffen Records representative gave me two tickets to see them at the Paradise, uh, which is a small club up in Boston. And I'd never heard a song off the album. I saw a picture of what they looked like and they looked like they would be pretty good. And (laughs) back in those days, I was going to uh, four shows a week. So it wasn't a big stretch for me to go see a band I hadn't heard of. And I went down to the Paradise and was absolutely blown away by this band I'd never heard before. Wow! So that was pre—that was well po- post-album release, right? But pre—you know—they like I said in the beginning, this, yeah, it didn't hit number one for for a year after it was out. So there was a lot of a lot of groundwork to be done for this band. Yes, a, leg they a lot of paying their dues in playing yeah. small clubs. And I remember them being absolutely great and rough and raunchy. And I only knew two songs, which were Knocking on Heaven's Door and Mama Kim by Earl Smith. And the only song I left there humming that I thought was interesting was Sweet Child of Mine because of the interesting intro on guitar. Yeah. and I read later that Slash said he was at a carnival and heard the organ calliope music and went home and tried to recreate a calliope on guitar. And that's what he ended up with. There you go. And, and it's so, one of the classic, it's a classic opening riff. If it's not a classic yeah. riff, it's an o- a classic opening to a song. Yeah. Um, 
I, as a as a classic rock ELO loving pop <laughs> loving person, I went to go work at Crazy Eddie, and at the time, uh, it was full of metalheads. So everybody <laughs> was wearing the black. They were wearing the chains. They had the long hair. Everybody was in a band. And then I come in, you know, kind of like pop music and all this other stuff. Um, and all they were talking about and all they ever played was this album, Appetite for Destruction. That's all they were ever talking about. So I, I can't say that I may have found out about them on my own. Sure, because in, in a year, everybody knew about Guns N' Roses. But they were just playing the shit out of this album. Mm. Like it was every every time I'd walk in and, and you know, Crazy Eddie's an electronics retailer um, which, which we can't even compare to anything anymore because there are no electronics retailers. But basically, you'd walk in and there'd be the showroom of the TVs, the, the car stereos, everything, da-da-da-da-da. And then you'd walk into the record department. As you're walking through the showroom, they're playing Bon Jovi on the car stereos. They're playing, you know, Wanted Dead or Alive. And then I'm walking in and then I get into the record department and it's Appetite for Destruction. It's totally dirty and grungy. And yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a different, it's like a dividing. The, the people in the record department were not the same as the people that worked in, in the showroom selling VCRs and, and selling, you know, uh, boom boxes and everything. So uh, I was exposed that way just through almost it being for, you know, I want to say forced in a bad way, being spoon fed, right? This album just kept playing. Yeah. Everyone was so, they were so excited about it, So, you know, everyone was advocating for it so heavily in a time <clears throat> where hair metal was the thing, right? We were in the in the in the throes of Motley Crue and Poison and and, yeah. and those type of bands, you know, White Lion and, and whoever it is. Um White Snake. But, White Snake. White Snake. Coverdale. But, but, yeah. was, but, but Guns N' Roses yeah. was different, you know. There was something different about them. Um you know, you you said that you know the we all said the dirty sound, the rock sound. Um, you know, I've always equated them to Aerosmith in in form and function, right? Mm -hmm. In form yeah. that they're a five five piece band. Let's go through that right now because we didn't do that. Um, you've got Axl Rose on vocals, you've got Slash on lead guitar, you've got Izzy Stradlin on uh, rhythm guitar, Duff McKagan on bass, and Steven Adler on drums. That's the same. <clears throat> Same type of lineup as Aerosmith, the front man, the the virtuoso lead guitarist, the the laid back rhythm guitarist, and the rhythm section. So there, you know, the DNA is there for that same type of, and Axl Rose with the scarfs and everything. So there's some, you know, you can kind of see that there. And '87 was when Permanent Vacation came out, which was Aerosmith's comeback album. But dude looks mm -hmm. like a lady. Um, yes. So I, I, you know, there's, so there's a lot going on in in '87 with this group that no one wanted to hear, though. Um, they they didn't it have made the fun with Aerosmith. Yeah, I saw them open up for Aerosmith. I'm sure that was a very clean, drug-free backstage area. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw them, I saw them open for Aerosmith as I, I saw them open for Aerosmith as well. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit. We'll talk about some of the shows because you and I, I think we've seen them uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah. That's but, interesting that they toured yeah. together, <clears throat> if I may interject. Because um, I would have thought that Aerosmith would have thought of this band as as a sort of being threatened by them because they were so much alike. In and like like Dean says, in their and and just the way their look and their form, it's interesting to see you know, that they would actually pick them as their opening act. And I would imagine that the, you know they probably turned a few heads, and people were probably really digging what they were doing. 
because it was fresh it was new yeah. it was, well know, exactly so that's the that's what you hit it on the yeah. head you have to think of it this way aerosmith yeah. was in their second coming right, right? they had yeah. You know, in the early 80s, they got rid of Joe Perry. They had Jimmy Crespo, and that didn't work. And then Joe Perry came back for, I think, Done With Mirrors. And then they were dormant, and then they come back. You know, Run DMC brought them back with yeah. Walk This Way. Yeah. So Aerosmith yeah. kind of comes back with this, with Permanent Vacation. They need something to connect to these younger audiences, right? Because they, at that point, even though it's, what, 30-something years ago, they were a relic of the 70s for all intents and purposes, right? Yeah, yeah. But getting a new up-and-coming fresh band... Uh, just so happened to emulate them in some way kind of makes sense. It, it, you know, it's kind of a smart thing, right? Cause you're getting, <clears throat> you're getting, you're getting the younger kids in, you know, and, and they're getting exposed to this new band guns and roses. Uh, and then they're kind of getting to see the grandfather or the father of guns and roses, Aerosmith, mm -hmm. the ones that originally did it. So the day, uh, the day that they come out together at any point on the show that like no. the members of guns no. and roses come and play without. No. Okay. No, yeah, everything but later, was... like 10 years later, Aerosmith did come out and jam with Guns N' Roses at some yeah. shows in Europe. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So so this album comes out, not not a lot of, you know, it kind of comes out and it gets a little bit of push from the from the record company, but it re isn't really doing much. So it's kind of like, okay, you know, Guns N' Roses thinks, okay, this is just going to, this is as far as we're going to go. They didn't really get a lot. Uh, MTV, you know, was was kind of reluctant or didn't want to play any videos. So one of the executives finally said, listen to MTV, like, just play our video once, three times in a row, three days in a row. You know, just do that for us. And they did it and they played it late at night. And the response to Welcome to the Jungle was phenomenal. People yeah. were like, oh, my God, who is this? What is this? Um, and then and then it took off. You know, that that was the thing is is at first it wasn't a whole lot of. uh whole lot of uh you know uh support or belief behind them uh but then once once that one one song took off welcome to the jungle boom it, it, then then it was on like donkey kong which um and you know again we we talked i was saying you know uh, motley crew and, and poison and a lot of those <laughs> bands are all kind of very they talk about partying right they talk you know the songs girls 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 and shout at the devil it almost seems yeah. gimmicky you know with Guns and Roses, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, with Guns and Roses, I always felt that this was kind of real. <laughs> like it, it was more. It was, they were dirty and yeah, right. Yeah, that, that, you know, like it wasn't. They were. It wasn't glamour. Girls, girls, girls from Motley Crue was like glamorizing strip clubs. Guns and Roses wasn't glamorizing the stuff they were doing. It was just kind yeah. of like a, a fact of of life. You know, Mr. Brown saw about heroin. You know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were walking the walk. It, they know, were just yeah, then, they, were, they were singing about it, but not promoting it. It's kind of yeah. like you know, yeah. Um, so I always thought that was that was something a little bit different, you know. Um, and then just the makeup of the band too. You know, like I said, you know, they just the way they were set up with with double guitarists. You know, most of these these glam and hair bands were were with some exceptions were four piece. You know, guitar, bass, drums, and a and a lead singer, and you kind of trot them out there. You know, a I think lot it, of slick production. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> a lot of help. And the big from, bombastic production. Right. You know, uh, studio, yeah. you know, drums that sound like cannon fire. That was like the yeah. big thing. Like those those drums right. that just sound like they're they're <laughs> you know firing cannons into a into a ship uh, yes. in the Revolutionary War. You know, this was this was a little bit more downplayed, right? It was a little bit mm -hmm. less produced, which gives it that more rock and roll feel, and not the slick feel, right? right. Rob, would you would you would you agree with that? That kind of the production also played a part in this a little bit in, in giving it that authentic feel and not that overblown eighties. 
quite a lot. And what I compare that production or, or the opposite production to is Def Leppard, where their first two albums, they sounded <laughs> like ACDC. They were a hard mm-hmm. rock band and I loved mm-hmm. them. And then Mutt Lang came in and added keyboards and strings and made them commercial and they sold a billion yeah. albums. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure whether it's the producer, whether it's Mike Klink or the band said, we don't want to sound overproduced, but they kept the rough edge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wonder what Def Leppard would have sounded like if they stayed a hard rock band. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, yeah. Once, yeah. once pyromania came out, they had a certain sound of the vocals, the backing vocals, mm-hmm. everything sound sounded a certain way, very tight and well-produced, which I can appreciate, you know, for Def, Le- Def Leppard, it works. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. But, but no one else tried to uh, very few, if any that I can think of tried to replicate that, you know, like, like Def Leppard had a sound of their own and no one kind of really tried to touch it. You know, no one came out with a, a pour some sugar on me thing, although unless you want to talk, say cherry pie from Warrant, but that was a poor yeah. man's poor man's attempt at it. Um, yeah. But but yeah, man's but <laughs> exactly. But yeah. back to back to this album. Um, yeah, it's 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 not overproduced, but it's but it sounds well recorded, right? So the, and there's a difference yes. there, right? There, there's a difference between a production. And, and having stuff being recorded in a in a in a way that it's the everything's sharp, there's separation, you can hear it. Uh, it's not murky and it's not muddy, and that's one of the, probably one of the refreshing things about the album too is that it's got this really hard edge sound that comes through really crystal clear. It's not punky where we're going to underproduce it and have it sound yeah. grungy just for the sake of. It's like yeah, it's right. dirty, it's edgy, but it sounds nice. It's recorded well, which is which is important. How long did we say how long that they had been like up to this point where they, um, they were probably doing a lot of excessive touring at this point, playing small clubs before the album. Right. And, and continue to do so even after the album was released. Yeah. Which is odd because typically, store. typically that's the way a band works is like they work their asses off just touring the stuff, yeah. writing the songs along the way. And then finally they get that big break album comes out and boom, it's, it's, it's a hit. And then they start their a, venues start getting bigger. A little you know, bit of this case that was you know, a little yeah. bit of a story to that is that they worked just on LA on the strip, got big, very big there, and got signed to Geffen and started working on this album. But to keep the interest alive, they released an EP called like Suicide EP, mm-hmm. which had four okay. songs on it, two covers, yeah. mm-hmm. two originals, and it was a live EP. And it was on their own label. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the four live songs were not live. They were studio demos with applause added in the background <laughs> from the Texas Jam in 74 to make it sound live. A little and sweet. They're in- interesting. Yeah. And wow. their independent label that they released it on was actually Geffen Records releasing it. But they didn't put the Geffen label anywhere on it so that they could maintain their street cred is putting out something on their own. They have a little cred. I was going to say, like, because, you know, commenting on how the album sounds, you know, that has that rough edge to it. It's it's emulating a live, almost like they're playing live in the studio and just recording that. Uh, But that's interesting that you pointed that out is that they actually, (laughs) they actually faked it. They actually faked a live (laughs) thing. You know, I find that's funny. 
That's funny. But let's yeah. put the crowd in afterwards. <laughs> we'll go get some crowd noise. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ax- Axel Rose because he is he his is a singular. His voice is you know something special in 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 this whole hair metal era. You know the the light metal hair band, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's a, he's like a three tool player. He had three really distinct voices that he would sing with, which again separated. You you didn't hear other vocalists in these other bands of that era doing different things. With you know, they would sing a ballad, they would sing it slow. Like every rose has its has its thorn. Poison. It would be a slow song, but sung the same way. Mm-hmm. Axl Rose has this low, flat, guttural, almost speaking way of singing, like like Mister Brownstone or It's So Easy, right? It's it's this low yeah. flat voice. Then he's got a middle singing voice, like like on "Sweet Child of Mine," which can be very—it's very—it's a very good voice. It's a strong voice. Yeah. <clears throat> and then on other parts of it, so it's so easy. He's got this screeching, high high pitched right voice that he yeah. can go to. Um, and you don't know if you if you've never listened to "Appetite for Destruction" before, you you'll you'll hear "Welcome to the Jungle" first, and then you hear "It's So Easy." You might think, oh, is is, is this a different vocalist? Is like the guitar who's who's singing now? Mm-hmm. Because it is yeah. that different. Yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't just sound like, oh, Axel's singing lower. His lower timber or whatever you want to call it is something different. It's, it's almost got like a men, it's got a menace to it, you know? Um, and, and I don't think we, uh, Rob, I mean, you, you're, you're probably the expert of, of this era. I don't think there was other bands that had that, that kind of a vocalist that would do that. I can't really think of one offhand. And the cool thing, jumping forward an album is that on, mostly on the Use Your Illusions, he did a lot of songs where he was harmonizing with himself, mm-hmm. singing the high part and the low part. And if you listen to those songs, you can hear it on the song Locomotive, where you're like, wait, who's who's he singing with? And you're yeah. like, oh, wow, he's doing both parts on that. That's amazing. So, um, so he yeah. really was a great vocalist. For for this album, though, he, from what I read, he, he for... Uh, appetite he was singing he would sing one line at a time though and like they would kind of record yeah. a line at a time uh probably because of what he was putting his vocal cords through uh just you know and again in some songs you're hearing you're hearing two distinct different types of of vocalizations in there um with, with the overdubbing and all that kind of stuff so it's really again that's that's what gave Guns N' Roses, their their uniqueness as well, right? Is mm-hmm. is giving you yeah. on the album. The album is very consistent, even though the vocals are different song to song. It's a consistent sound, so you can kind of sit down and embrace this, and and you're gonna you know what you're gonna get. No ballads, I, and I don't think I don't think yeah. I, I don't think Sweet Child of Mine really qualifies. Do you, Robert, ballad or no? Sweet Child of Mine. I don't consider it one. They actually kind of consider it a ballad because I read that they were going to put November Rain on Appetite for Destruction, but they didn't want to have two ballads with Sweet Child. Yeah. So they put it in the tank for illusion. Well, so if you if you don't consider Sweet Child of Mine a ballad, there's no ballads on this album. Correct. Right. It is just one song after another. Not very repetitive. Um, it, it moves. It, this this album just kind of motors along, carries you from one song to another. You know, it's so easy. Night Train, Mr. Brownstone. You just you're going through just really great, strong song after song. Like not not a whole lot of filler on this album. I really like when I sit down. There's and listen no to it, song you have to skip. 
Yeah, I'm like ready for the next one. It's like, what, what, what is it? What are you going to bring next? You know, um, because they do it so well. You know, you've got Steven Adler on the drums uh, for this album. He would appear partially on Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, or was he gone by then? No, Matt Sorum would be on there by then. Matt Sorum was on that. Yeah. The Steve, interesting Steven thing about having some drug problems and. The interesting so thing about Steven's playing on Appetite for Destruction and is apparent also in some early videos of them playing Los Angeles clubs is that he didn't use a mounted tom. If you listen to the album, all the fill-ins he does, including songs like Mr. Brownstone, which have a ton of drums in them, it's all snare drum and floor tom. Every fill, just if you're a drummer, listen to the album and yeah. you'll yeah. hear no toms. See, yeah. And that's mm -hmm. kind of cool. That's kind of different. It is cool. As opposed yeah. to like a Neil Peart or something who's... Oh, so, yeah, like fifty thousand. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, 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 you know, from the drums, the sea of drums, half inch, yeah. half inch tom to the the That's two right. foot tom. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, so and 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 Stephen Adler, you know, had his share of uh, drug issues. They tried to make some ultimatums. Hey, get yourself cleaned up, or else. Um, he couldn't couldn't get it together, so they dismissed him. They got Matt Sorum, who was at that time with with the cult. Um, and that's when the cracks started to show, you know, the, the, one of the, as great as Guns N' Roses was, they imploded just as quickly, you know, Izzy Stradlin, the, the rhythm guitarist would say once Steven left, that they, they lost a little bit of, of their swing. You know, he felt that, that Steven was a really good swing pocket style drummer that brought mm -hmm. something dynamic to, to the band. And then once you already, you're already slotting in and out players, it's, it's not good for, you know, the problems that, that they were having internally. They start to get known. We'll we'll talk a little bit about the shows. Uh, for some reason, uh, Axl Rose felt it was a good idea to wait sixty minutes to come on after between you know after the opening act or even sometimes longer than that. Uh, once they got big, once they were the headline, and when when you're the opener, you're not pulling that kind of stuff. You're um, on time. You're on time. You're starting. Yeah. So that that'll lead me to my first my first encounter with Guns and Roses live was. Um, uh, 1988, August of 1988. Um, I was, I was known back then as the extra guy. So if there was always a ticket, if people had concert tickets and someone couldn't go, they would call me, Hey, you want to go? And I would go. I saw journey that way. I saw a lot of groups that way. I saw sticks that way. Yeah. I mm -hmm. saw a lot of groups as the extra guy. So there, so it was uh, a giant stadium <clears throat> and it was uh deep purple and Aerosmith was the show. But that show had gotten canceled and was rescheduled for August. So they had added this new group as a triple bill called Guns N' Roses. So we got there early at Giant Stadium um, and Guns N' Roses came on. And if you look at the Paradise City video, uh, any of the black and white footage, that was, I mean, the color footage was filmed at, at the Giant Stadium gig where I was, where no one was there yet. So if you watch, if you look at the video, that's always filmed from them facing the front, not the crowd stuff, mm -hmm. um, yeah. because there was barely anybody there. They were just kind of going through their set, doing what they had to do and kind of getting it done. And then uh, Deep Purple came on. And, and by that time, it had it, it started getting dark at, you know, at the state. It was like a long day. It was like a long thing. Um, and Deep Purple comes on and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in my seats and I was like back, back from the, you know, it was probably like on the opposite side of the stage on the 20 yard line on the other side. So I was really way back. Uh, and I look across and I see someone lit the seats on fire during smoke on the water. 
uh, during that concert. And then all these seats are like, a fl- so it's at night and all you see is this fire across the other side of the stadium of these seats are on fire and they're playing like smoke on the water. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm here. And then, nice. and then came, Very Aerosmith nice. Came all the way in the rafters to boot, right? <laughs> no, we were, we were down low. We, we were far okay. back, but we okay. were, we were kind of down low. It wasn't, it wasn't the worst seats, but uh, it was a long day, but Guns N' Roses came on and no one had really heard of them. This was, you know, uh, August of 88, the, the album had just hit number one. Yeah. Because I think it hit number one oh. the week before. So they were still kind of get you know getting up to speed with stuff and, and still that opening band, right? They kind of threw them in on a triple bill with with Aerosmith. Um, so Rob, you said you first saw them before that, well before that, right? With when they were kind of up and coming. I saw um, them a few times before that. Yeah, yeah oh, I saw them at a, I saw them at a, at the club, as I said, the second time I saw them at a theater in Boston called the Orpheum, which is basically the same as the Beacon in New York. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I saw uh-huh. them open up for Aerosmith. And those were the three Appetite for Destruction shows I saw. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran into them again in, in June of 91. Uh, at Saratoga Springs. So they were an open, they were a big band then at that point, they were, you know, the guys, I think Skid Row was opening for them. And um, I actually appear on, on Use Your Illusion on the album. So um, <laughs> I, I'm on the song, Get in the Ring, which, which isn't really much of a song. It's more of a rant. You know, they got, it kind of, kind of, that <laughs> rant. It's kind of it doesn't, that song doesn't age well. It's not Use Your Illusion. It's not on Appetite for Destruction. He was just railing against everybody that would hated them and, you know, Circus Magazine and Hip Parade, whoever it was. Um, but anyway, we were at the show and Axel comes out and he goes, you know, we need you, we need you guys to chant for us, chant, gu- <clears throat> chant Guns and Roses. And they, they had us chanted for a certain amount of times. I said, OK, stop. And then I said, we need you to chant the words get in the ring. So we chanted the words get in the ring for however long. They said, stop. Lo and behold, that was the only time they did it. I, I looked this up. It was the only yeah. time they recorded it. And it's on it's on usual illusion. So I'm there. I never got it. Rob never got a royalty check. No. <laughs> what do you think that's worth? Is your is name it, inside the album? Is there a class action lawsuit with me and everybody else that was at Saratoga Springs that day? I think you could I didn't start sign a waiver. I didn't sign a waiver. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got something there. I think I, yeah, a little too late. They're gonna be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this so back, back to to appetite for destruction. They once they hit number one, it, I think that's when it really took off, right? Because that's when um, what sweet child of mine, uh, yeah, welcome to the jungle hit number seven. Sweet yeah. child of mine hit number one. Paradise City hit number five. So there was a stretch where people, you know, they couldn't get enough. Then the album took off. So you know, again, you're talking ten million or eighteen million. I'm sorry, eighteen times platinum for a debut album. It was just throwing a match onto a pile of gasoline. You know, just totally exploded like nothing Mm -hmm. else we'd seen. And and the best best selling debut of of all time. I believe that uh, that record still stands, I believe. Um, So so, so they kind of put all these other bands on notice, right? All these other bands in in that hair band, you know, era, Wasp or, you know, uh, Striper and uh, Winger and all these other things. Like there was nobody that could touch Guns N' Roses. Like they seemed like they were living that the excesses that they sang about for real. And it wasn't like, like gimmicky, um, yeah. but it would rear its ugly head. Right. Because, yeah, they, you know, they, 
Axel Rose would start to complain about that. Like, hey, you guys are just getting out of control with it. Hmm. You guys, I mean, the other bands, they had to kind of up their game, I think, a little bit. And they, I don't think they ever did. But <laughs> um, but yeah, you you're right. Feel uh, bad for, you got to feel bad for Steven Adler. You know, if you get kicked out of Guns N' Roses for doing too much drugs, that's going to be pretty darn bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's if issuing, yeah, if they're right. issuing ultimatums. So, yeah, and I think... I think at one show, Axel was just railing against everybody. Like, you guys are just out of control. You're doing, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, there's something to be said for self-awareness, but, you know, they were all, they were purveyors of that lifestyle, though. Their music was, was, was singing about it, speaking about it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, it makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense that they were, they were having these issues, but, um, or Izzy Stradlin certainly wasn't, you know, the, the rhythm guitar certainly wasn't in on that as much. Um, he was becoming disillusioned, you know, Axel, you know, uh, you know, going on stage 90 minutes late, that starts to become a problem. Um, they, they, there, almost, they became their own worst enemies. What was the reason for that? Does, was there ever attitude, right? Rob, he just, just attitude. Was just, it just attitude? Because he just, could. just because yeah, he, he could. could. Yeah. 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 I, I saw him at Madison square garden. Soundgarden was opening up and I had never heard of Soundgarden, And so Soundgarden went on. Usually it's like 30 to 45 minutes for breakdown, right? Even, nowadays it's even quicker, but back then everyone had their, their rigs and everything. Yeah, you yeah. break that down. So, you know, you give like 45 minutes, it'd be an hour and then there'll be another hour before he would even go on. And people, you know, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was a control thing where he was felt he was in control of the audience or whatever, but people would just, by that time, you're kind of pissed off. Like I'm ready. To, are we leaving or what? Like, yeah, are we staying? Yeah. Uh, is he coming out? Uh, we heard this was going to happen, but it's not fun when you're, when you're, when you're there. Yeah. Never he had, really the, has uh, a... never had the privilege <laughs> or, or I should say the, you know, that the, experience the of having to sit yeah. there because I probably would have. Yeah. So that, that, I don't know. That sucks. But for bands that, you know, embrace your popularity and, but I mean, for God's sake, you know, it's just like night and day, you know, you're going, you're coming from playing small clubs to yeah. big arenas and you, and you put rebelling food. against that. It might've been yeah, rebelling against the, the, the label or doing, doing no Rob, what do you think? Like to, to piss people, you know, to piss off the label. Cause they certainly don't want to piss off the record buying cup public. Right. Cause we're the ones buying the records. And they don't want to piss off the promoter or they're not going to be booked for the rest of the tour. That's true. Yeah. But they, were, but they got away with this for, this was like the, he still does it, right? He still does it now, I think. I'm not, I, I think he quit it when he was in his buckethead days okay. in the early 2000s and that, that kind of stuff. Um, but the magic thing about Guns N' Roses Live and especially Axel is that he was a loose cannon. Mm -hmm. You know, if anybody, and the audience looked at him wrong, held out a camera that he didn't want. He would just throw it on his mic, jump out into the crowd, yeah. start a fight, turn around and say, the show is over. I don't like this crowd. If you look at old it. videos, done. yeah, done. The show's over. If you look at old videos, he's just spinning around like a madman where you're surprised he doesn't spin right off the stage. Right. And that was always something amazing about those shows is in the same way, if you're sitting on a chair in high school that tilts and almost falls back, but doesn't, and you don't yeah. know if it's going to go back or forward. That's how their shows were. Yeah. They could be absolutely, you could, they could fall and wipe out and be a half hour show and be the worst thing ever. 
or they could just rip it and be the best band that ever lived. And yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, that, and that's the da- that was the danger of of, go- of going to the show, yeah. right? You, you don't know what you were going to get. It wasn't like going yeah. to James Taylor. James Taylor's not no. going to walk off and be like, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to I don't want to play Carolina on my mind again. Don't ask, you know, that he's going to do what he's going to do. Yeah, he's going to show up, you know. Um, of course, yeah. Rob, let, let sure. me ask you this, Rob, because it, you know, I always when I think about you know, we've on, on our previous episodes with Eric, you know, we we talk a lot about the grunge era. And we talk about the eighties, right. And, and the, the gap, you know, where 91, yeah. you, you started to see, you know, Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and this and that. And, and, you know, from, in my mind, right. I draw that distinction, Guns and Roses. I don't, I don't link them with the hair bands. Would it be a fair assessment? This is my assessment that Guns and Roses was kind of a stopgap, almost a bridge. They were not grunge but they represented something a little dirtier that gr- that grunge would take. Grunge did not take the clean makeup, teased up hair that the hair bands did. And, and Guns N' Roses was that in the very beginning, but then they kind of evolved into something a little bit more, a little something a little different, right? They tried to evolve with Use Your Illusion. Yeah. Do you, I feel, do you, do you see where I'm going with that yeah. or totally off base? Yes. No, what you're saying is that, and I agree, Guns N' Roses is definitely one of them, but there are a couple of bands that were missing links between hair metal and grunge. Um, and another band I consider Jane's Addiction, one of those bands, mm, yeah. where they've Absolutely. got the heavy metal roots, but they just weren't, you couldn't call them heavy metal because they just yeah. weren't. Um, yeah, you couldn't put them in a box. With, yeah, yeah. And um, although I was never that big into the Chili Peppers, they probably fell into that missing category also. I I agree with that, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I think there was some kind of those transitional bands that, they're not grunge. Which the gap. Yeah, but they were kind of, yeah, they were were kind of like that in-betweener, the the kind of the space filler, you know? And especially with, with, you know, when Guns N' Roses after post-Appetite, a lot of the stuff for their follow-up, Use Your Illusion, was actually written during the Appetite for Destruction era. So like you said, you mentioned November yes. Rain earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those songs they had kicking around. So that, But but that's it was a more ambitious thing. Let's release, let's not only release a double album, but but it's not really going to be a double album. It's going to be two single albums, but we'll release them on the same day. You know? Yeah. yeah. So they really went for something ambitious to, to really expand uh, expand their sound, right? They added uh, Dizzy Reed on, on keyboard. So they... We're already kind of growing, even though the inner turmoil was eating at them. They were also trying, you know, Axel and Axel Rose was asserting more control, which probably was the mistake of probably trying to do that a little too early. I think, you know, someone's got to be the leader, but I mm-hmm. think he was he was probably grabbing too much too soon, you know, and, and with his erratic behavior, it becomes, OK, this, you know, this becomes a, it becomes like almost an untenable situation. So Izzy Stradlin would leave not long after Use Your Illusion uh, was released. He's like, he, he headed for the door. So now you've now you've got the drummer out. You've got the a guitarist out. You've got a, a keyboardist in. You know, now, then it starts to not be, at what point does it start to not be Guns N' Roses for you, Rob? Yeah. And then on the Use Your Illusion tour had different aspects to it. Most of the way into the tour, they started to have a whole horn section of like five different very hot young women playing the horns. <laughs> then after they did that, they did a skin and bone legs of the tour, which was just the five of them again. Yeah. And they would even bring a couch out for an acoustic set in the middle. 
So they tried all different incarnations to see, you know, which seemed to work the best or feel the most comfortable. Yeah, which you, which you have to applaud that that they were they weren't just going out and trotting trotting out the same set list, you know, which bands do or or at the time that was pretty popular. Right. It's like okay, here's yeah. our set list, here's what we're doing, and we're gonna go from town to town and do it. So by them doing that, you gotta you gotta kind of appreciate it. <clears throat> we talked about uh, November Rain from Use Your Illusion. We'll get back to Appetite, but there is a. Uh, there it is. There's a good bell. We've got a Jeff Lynn connection for November Rain. Um, originally, and and if you listen to that that song, it's it's an epic song. It's like seven or eight minutes. Uh, it's probably one of their biggest production produced at songs from Use Your Illusion. It's got strings and everything. That that that. How does Jeff Lynn come in? Well, originally Axl Rose wanted Jeff Lynn to produce that song for them. I I don't think I can imagine that. That would my I think my head might explode. I don't know if that was. <laughs> You know, uh, they, not probably, they need to treat him with, you know, the right well, what way. What he was, what he was thinking about was ELO in the seventies at that, I think at that yeah. point. So yeah, that was, Jeff he was Lynn definitely influenced, but he wasn't doing that anymore. No. You know, at this point he was a producer, but it was very, he has a very, you know, stripped down production sense and style and it's at very that, at time. Yeah. Close to the chest. And, and, you know, so and, and Jeff, I'm sure probably was like, no, we're, we're just, he wasn't into the lush production. Yeah. I don't think he had to, I think he, I didn't think he had yeah. the time. I think that's what it was. In, in 91, he was getting pulled six ways from Sunday. So mm -hmm. um, it might have been, been, been interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. It would have been interesting to, to see, but uh, he might have been like, yeah, I just, I just can't. This is just too much. You know? <laughs> or, or maybe he said, you know, my friend George Harrison said, no, I can't do it. Yeah, so, there you go. Um, but get, get, let's get back to Appetite. Rob, what, what songs stick out for you? Besides the hits. I mean, the, hit, the hits are the hits. And, and they're undeniable, right? Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, Sweet Child of Mine. Those are like three, but there's a lot of other minor hits as well. What What are some of the minor songs that really kind of do it for you? For me, those three are the top tier. Yep. The second tier for me, very close behind that, Mr. Brownstone, I think is one of the best mm -hmm. songs. I'll give you that one. In that area. Um, they've always, they're always opening the shows these days with... Uh, it's so easy. So that's definitely up there. Uh, Night Train is definitely up there. And um, gotta love the lyrics. I've got a Molotov cocktail with a match to go. I smoke my cigarette with style. Yep. That's it. Yeah. Um, it's, it, Eric, what about you? What do you have? Uh, I like my Michelle. Uh, I do like Paradise City is my favorite. That's a hit. But uh, Mr. Brownstone, I love Night yep. Train. Yeah, so those are the big, yeah. the big ones for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just again a very well, well put together album. And and consider the length of this album too—almost fifty-four minutes. That was pretty, you know, not the norm. You know, no, it's it's twelve songs. So stretching the limits of LP of an album of LP, of LPs. Typically, they're like nine songs, maybe ten at that point. But yeah, yeah. but or and, of, and of what could fit as far as time. You're you. That's you right. Know, for LPs, yeah. you were constricted by actual space right. of what you could get in. And I was surprised that this was out on LP. I'm like, how, yeah, did, this get, how, did, this, how did this get out on LP? Because usually like 45 minutes is a topper yeah. for an album to, to fit, you know, <clears throat> without degrading. That's the thing is you can you can get more, more stuff on an album, but then the grooves, the space between the grooves gets thinner. That's right. and that, so you lose a little um, fidelity. Um, and on, and on that's it. when it becomes a double album because you yeah. have to put, you know, you got to put them on all four yeah. sides. 
but yeah, yeah. I mean, LPs were kind of on their way out at this point, I guess, but they, yeah, they but the, the, the release was still there. I mean, it was still, yeah. and, and, and sounded great. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with rocket queen. I really like rocket queen. Uh, it closes the album out. It's kind of a different song. It, it's got, you know, kind of a different section towards the end. It kind of changes. So you're kind of getting a, a prototypical Guns N' Roses song in the beginning. And then it kind of changes up at the end. And I really kind of like, again, I like that they're, they're not afraid to try different things. So yeah, this is a very fast album. The The songs mm-hmm. are up-tempo. They move. Uh, you know, Axl Rose growls, screams, shrieks, and, and baritones his way through this album, which is... Uh, w- one of the things that makes it so dynamic as well, right? It's not just, yeah. oh, I, I, oh, I sing here and that's my vocal range and that's all I do. You're, you're getting someone that really kind of is, is uh, you know, guttural sometimes, uh, shrieking sometimes, but then very tender, like Sweet Child of Mine. He sings it straight up pretty much, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and he really delivers it. He's got a he's got a strong voice. That's the thing. You think, oh, Axl Rose is a pain in the ass. He does all this crazy stuff, but... He's actually a really good vocalist. He can sing. He's got a really clear, strong voice when he wants to sing those types of songs right. as well. They can't well, take I think that that's, away from him. I think that's the thing. It's like he knew it. That's why he uh, got away with be. half the shit that he got away with because he could knew be. that he was unique in that sense. So how many how many singers were there like that at that point? Yeah. You know, so yeah. very easy, not you easy to replace, you know. You, so. you mentioned Rocket Queen and trying new things in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something interesting on that song. During the breakdown near the end, mm-hmm. uh, Axel felt like he wanted something more in the breakdown. And he called up uh, Steve Nathler's girlfriend to come down to the studio and played that middle section for her and said, we're going to go into the recording booth and have Uh-oh. sex and you be as loud as possible. And <laughs> there you go. And that story is not refuted by anybody. She, <laughs> said, she said, that's me on the recording. That's her. Axel's that, like, that's her on the recording. So no, that, that's, that's different than a fake crowd noise. That's not yes, quite the yes. fake crowd noise from their EP. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, Rob, did you know? I, I just found this out recently. Did you know that Axl Rose re-recorded this album in 1999? I never. Heard he of got. He got. He got whoever the the group was at the time. Whoever was in the group at the time. Um. Uh. Who was it? Uh, Robin Singh, Tommy Stinson, yeah, Paul Tobias, Josh Fries, Dizzy Reed, and Chris Pittman. Um, wanted he he wanted to re-record it because they have you know in the nineties had new recording techniques. They re-recorded the album yeah. was never really never released. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Is that something you'd want to hear? Would that be a weird curiosity, or would that be cringe? I, like, nah, because that 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 was Axel with the braids at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because I knew Tommy, and he used to say that they had a beeper the band had to wear a beeper all the time and that axel would page them at three in the morning because he had an idea and yeah. they had to come over to his studio and play around with it that they had no time to themselves but they were paid very nicely so it was yeah you're, you're on call but that's it that's it. that's like being a paid employee though that's not like being a band member right that's kind of like uh, 100% yeah. a, a hired hand you know and that's what yes. happened after after they exploded you know after you know, use your illusion that the group imploded into a thousand pieces, you know, their next album was supposed to be called Chinese democracy. It was going to be like their epic, 
epic thing and it became one of the greatest lost albums it became like like the beach boy smile like chinese democracy was supposed to be this album that Axel was working on for years and years. I remember that it was like a they, long anticipated, you know, they would announce it. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Co coming in 97, yep. coming in yep. 99, coming in mm -hmm. 03. And then it finally came out in whatever, like 2009 or whatever it was. And everyone's like, oh, okay. Like the bloom was off the rose at that point. Like there was yeah. no, you know, little, little inside joke off the rose, the Axel rose. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. Like, like, you know, Guns N' Roses came and went and they weren't a, even a band at that point. They weren't even a, a, a cohesive band concern. It was Axel, the Axel Rose project more than anything at that point. Because mm -hmm. they were all very, yeah, there's a lot I of agree. animosity there. You know, act, you know, Slash is like, I'm, you know, whatever, I'm done. I don't need to, I don't need this anymore. And he went on his own thing, uh, Slash's Snake Pit and a couple of other projects, hired Gun on, on some other projects and, and did things. And um, Velvet Revolver, right? That was Slash and Duff. Sure. Yeah, with with, with the late Scott Wyland, you know, um, so stuff. they moved on. They moved on, but but Axel just still stayed like war. Like he kind of like went underground. Like like he's still working on this Chinese democracy album. That's all that was ever talked about. It's like still I'm still working. It's still working on. It. Still, the, and you'd hear a snippet of a song or a rumor of a, of a release date, and it would never come. It would come and go, yeah. uh, and then it finally came out, and everyone's like, yeah, okay. See, that's Next, when that's so, the yeah. point where you you know if you're that involved with the music and you're that, you know, you can't alienate your fans at the same time because there's nobody going to be listening to this when it's done, when it's all said and done. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. It's like, nobody cared. Yeah. Cause there was nothing you know? in between. Right. And it's, yeah. you know, and right. There was the like a 20 year gap and, of, of right. nothing. Right. Exactly. So it's just, you know, at that point people just, you know, there are other bands we could be listening to or, and music. You know, I'd rather listen to velvet revolver, you know, because yeah. Slash was, it was a great, he's a fantastic musician. And yeah. that's, you know, that's what so, people, uh, when you get older, that's what you appreciate. It's not so much the, the, the acrobatics and the show that you were, it's, it's, it, it, you start to appreciate what they're actually doing, you know, yeah. and what they're, and what they're creating. And, you know, at least, uh, at least that's just my opinion anyway. But, uh, so who cares that, you know, he's keeping people waiting for two hours or whatever it is <laughs> over a show. No, I want to hear music and I'm going to, well, I'm going to hold on, you know, I'll go listen to another band. I'll go see another band at this point and just, you know, and know that I'm going to get what I want, you know, out of that band and bands who appreciate their audience. Mm -hmm. And it's just people who are so flippant like that about their audience is just, uh, I don't get it. I mean, Dean and I experienced Dylan uh, yeah. a couple of years back <laughs> and, and uh, he, you know, did the exact same thing. And it's just, I, you know, it was, we had to see him because, you know, Dean got tickets, he, you know, invited me to go and we went and I, I'm glad to say that I, I got to see Bob Dylan once in my life, but yeah. it was just, it was one of those shows that yeah. it was, it was, he was doing standards at that point and he was, he was mocking, literally mocking these standards. Like he was doing them in such a way that it was almost made, he was almost like making fun of it and, and just yeah. pissing the, and yeah. the, the audience was just so aggravated so pissed off and these are diehard supposedly yeah. diehard dylan fans who came to the show before the you know he came on talking about dylan and how many times they saw him and and you know you come to expect it to dylan but the, even they were annoyed yep. by it they were <laughs> pretty incensed so yeah it yeah. just it, it just goes to show you know it's yeah. kind of like you know it, it's have, people are only going to hang around for a certain amount of time that's right I have a velvet revolver conspiracy theory. Uh oh, let's hear it. Tell me if this is in my own head. I've never looked it up on the internet to see if it's true <laughs> or not. But the name, Velvet Revolver. 
Uh-huh. Scott Weiland was in a band called Stone, and they went with Velvet. Okay. Guns and Roses, Revolver. Revolver. Hmm. Stone. I think you think am I just imagining that uh, or did they theory. play off those two bands? It, it could be oh, almost it, certainly it could, be, could be a, a a nod to both. I, I think. or it could be. A, I, I would think maybe maybe a, a nod to Velvet Underground and Revolver by the Beatles. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> nice. I think there you go. Now, if you want to, since, since you since you brought up, you brought it up, Rob. You brought up. Oh, well, actually, I brought up Velvet Revolver. I'm sorry. I'll take the hit for it. Velvet Revolver did a cover of "Can't Get It Out of My Head" by the Electric Light Orchestra. Well, there you go. Um, there's another ELO, two ELO references for the price of one. Um, uh-huh. let, let's talk about the, as we wrap up, let's talk about the Hall of Fame. So they get inducted. This is the sad tale that we've told on many episodes <laughs> of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the continuing animosity that uh, was going on. So I, at that point, uh, all things weren't well in Guns N' Roses land like they are now. Now Guns N' Roses tours. Mm-hmm. Slash is on stage. Duff is on stage. Uh, I don't. I don't think Matt Sorum. I think they got somebody else. But the three original members, minus Izzy Stradlin, are, are are touring, and everybody loves it, and it's a great time. But back in 2011, 2012, uh, things were not so happy. So they get inducted. Everybody shows up, but Axel, you know, because he's got to pull that nonsense. He's got to be Axel. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, tar- like I hate when bands do that. Yeah. You know, like it's it's it's. And you could think what you want. You could hate the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he thanked the fans. He goes, this, this is for you, all the fans. If it's for the fans, then swallow your pride and go and perform. Do two songs, walk off, yeah. and don't talk to each other yeah. ever again if you need to. Right. Right. Sign exactly. a contract. We'll be in separate rooms. We'll, we'll sound check for 10 minutes. Whatever it is, do whatever you got to do, but then do that. Right. Exactly. If yeah, you're saying it's for the fans, this will, you know, you guys got us in, then honor that. You know, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. It, it yep. you know, it really it's it's a shame. Outside really of, of them trying to murder each other, you know, <laughs> where you fear for your life, like what, like, you know, if you're fighting. Great, you're fighting. Just you don't mm-hmm. have to talk to each other. Do the sound check. You guys know the songs already. Roll through a couple and then go your separate ways, you know, and I, and put I, and put on a show. I often think that that's almost part of the lifestyle, part of the the mystique of rock and roll to begin with, is that you. You have to be. You have to hate each other. Isn't that the tradition, right? You can't, you can't be like even, REM and, and yeah. you too. You can't it's, all like each other. Or, they or all rush, like each other, and they all get along. Rush did it for you know they yeah. were the most consistently, and they yeah. never bickered. They never, you know, they didn't party a lot either. But they, I mean, they carried through and all the way to done. the end. It can be done. It's it can be example. nice. You can co- you can collaborate. But it seems like that's the deal. stigma, right? It's like no, we're in a band. Even almost yeah. famous did it. Like Cameron Crowe almost even parried it in, in, yeah. his, in his own film. With the band, you know, you know, with, they're not getting along, and yeah. you know, you know, Billy Crudup and you know, Jason Lee, oh, you know, like fighting, and you know, yeah, that seems to be the almost part of the criteria for for being in a rock and roll band is to yeah. not. We could name, you know, Eagles, Journey, yeah. Sticks, you know, Blondie, Mac. yeah, yeah, so much, so yeah. much acrimony in these That's bands, right. and it's just kind of yeah. like, all right, you know, I well, I've but, got one uh, last yeah. GNR story. Go ahead, go for it. Okay, okay. so. Before the Yuju Illusion albums came out, uh, about a month or two before, Guns N' Roses did a secret club tour of three clubs in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. I knew about the New York show. I called up 
everybody I knew in the music <laughs> business, everybody was going, nobody had an extra ticket for me. Oh. So my friend and I take our uh, wallets, go down there, and it's like, we're going to get into this show. We finally find somebody that had extra tickets. We paid an absorbent amount. We swore to each other that until the day we died, we would never tell anybody how much we paid to get into the Brits show of Guns N' Roses. So that's a great story. Is, Bob, how much, how much did you pay? Are you going to reveal that we, or no? <laughs> we each paid, we each paid $100 to get in. But back it then the tickets were probably like fifteen. Yeah, they were probably like fifteen dollars the tickets yeah, back then. It says yeah, twenty yeah. bucks on it. Yeah, it says twenty bucks on the ticket. Twenty bucks. So yep. there you yeah, go. back then it was like, oh, that's highway robbery. That that's like the going rate for like a balcony seat nowadays, right. not, or even more. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's not, not even. even uh, we, paid, we paid five times face value. You know? <laughs> so. That was probably. I was like, yeah, man, I just made a hundred bucks. Now it's like a hundred. I, I paid that for. I'd pay that for the nosebleeds, you know, easily, easily pay that. Yeah. For pay that for a t-shirt nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So, so Rob, Rob, I'm, I'm going to call you to the carpet as, as we, as we close out. Go for when, it. Uh, when, when use your illusion one and two came out, uh, you were working at tower records in Yonkers, New York. In Yonkers. In Yonkers, New York. And I was, I was a patron of that, of that store. I shopped there quite often. I was buy buy CDs. Thank you. You guys also had the video rental side. So I'd go rent faces of death or, Whatever creepy stuff was available, I'd go rent there. Um, and then you guys had when when Use Your Illusion One or Two came out, you guys had a midnight opening, so you're going to sell it at midnight. Uh, and yes. you guys promised food, and People I waited on up, so We bought them pizza. We yeah, them well, pizza. yeah, you're right. You, you you are absolutely right. You did buy pizza, but what you're not telling everybody is that the guy came with the pizzas and threw them on the ground as he was walking by, like he's dealing out <laughs> car, like a dealing out a deck of cards, and then everyone was like scrambling, like like like. <laughs> Like maniacs to flip the box open and grab a slice <laughs> and then get your space back online. So, I'm, oh, no. so all these years later, I'm, I'm thanking you for the, for the pizza. So now You're we're welcome. even for the, we're, we're even for the Hendrix cassette. There you go. <laughs> that works. Eric, well, Eric you were with me. You were with me, right? Yes. I yeah. did. We, we, it was a midnight thing. And you, uh, yeah. our friend, John was also with us and you guys yeah, we were, you know, Get the get the, um, the, the, the the get the two CDs and the two CDs, uh, right? You know, and I remember distinctly that that those both those CDs were very very different. By the right. way, you know, we didn't really comment on this, but both albums were distinctively different. That's probably the reason why they didn't decide to make it a double album, is because they're you know the music was just so yeah night and day. I'm a huge fan to this day. I don't know which songs are on which album. Yeah, I get confused. So I'm yeah. like, wait, where where's where's uh, where's don't cry. Which version? And yeah. then it's like version. <laughs> Which like, version? Okay. Yeah, it's like I, I can't keep track of it. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's. I think that's gonna do it. Uh, Appetite for destruction. A, a watershed moment in rock and roll. Uh, an instant classic, right? I mean, that I think that's easy to say, Rob. That this when this came out, like "Sweet Child of Mine" was an instant anthem from from the opening yes. lick. Mm-hmm. It's just it was what, a game changer. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. Uh, again, in, in a, in a decade, a wash with excess, uh, and excessive hairspray and excessive makeup, um, this, uh, these guys kind of came in and just kind of really, uh, brought, you know, really brought, brought rock and roll back down to the grain, really sanded away a lot of that varnish. And and for a brief moment, they, they really, they flew high, but they, you know, imploded. 
But for that brief moment, they really kind of showed what rock and roll could, what, what, what it was and what it could be again. But looming on the horizon was grunge anyway. So, you know, things, things were going to change, you know, things were going to change no matter what, but Guns N' Roses was, they hit at the perfect time uh, with the, with the right kind of music. And this album is, is immortal. It, it should be in everybody's collection, whether mm-hmm. if you're not a big metal or rock fan, have this one in as the obligatory then right I say agree. oh I totally for, for credit you know yep. if you want to have the credit in your, in your rock and roll collection or your music collection have appetite for destruction when people flip through all oh, guns and roses huh oh, all right you know you'll 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 get that you'll get that look of uh, of acknowledgement so yep. that's going to do it for this episode of the 3324 podcast robert prisman thank you my friend thank you a pleasure thank you thank Good you so much you. We'll definitely want to have you back on again. We'll get, uh, maybe we'll do, a, uh, if we do another Rush album, perhaps, or uh, if we do the yeah. Scorpions, we'll, we'll dig up Rob Mayorano and he can help us out. <laughs> oh, goodness. Sure. <laughs> That's right. That's right. If he's yeah. listening, Rob, how are you? But anyway, that'll do it. Find <laughs> us on social media, won't you? At 3324Podcast. That's on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, we've got video versions of this, too. So you can go to YouTube and you can kind of see all three of our mugs and see what we look like. Uh, see what three classmates from from way back when look like now aged. Um, and then we also do live shows every other week on YouTube and Facebook as well. So join us there. So for Robert, thank you very much. For Eric, this has been Dean asking you to please flip the record over and listen to side B. It's just as good as side A. You've been listening to the 3324 podcast with Dean Legiro and Eric Cooper. You can find us on your favorite podcast provider. So please like, subscribe, and rate to become a part of the 3324 family. Your feedback is important, so make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at 3324podcast and on Twitter at 3324p to join the conversation. 